Thank you, and gracias for coming to the podcast. It's Top Turtle MMA Podcast, Episode 60, and we have a very special show for you today. It is the Habib versus Tony Ferguson Super Show. We are so excited for this fight that we are going to break it down and look at both fighters' histories in a unique way and, of course, preview the rest of UFC 209. That being said, we of course are brought to you by the best mouthguard ever invented, Sisu Mouthguards. If you do a high-impact sport or activity and you're not using a Sisu Mouthguard, hate to tell you, you're a dum-dum. Head on over to SISUGuard.com, find the right mouthguard for your sport or activity. They all have a crumple zone, they all are perforated so you can talk, breathe, drink, all with the mouthguard up in your mouth. That's SISUGuard.com. Sisu Mouthguards brings you this episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We are rolling. I am David Tremonti. He is Daniel Gumby Vreeland, and you are listening to Top Turtle MMA Podcast, part of the Sports Daily Network on MMA-Manifesto.com. We, of course, are available there. Also, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play. Give us a like. Give us a subscribe. Give us a download. It keeps the lights on in Top Turtle Podcast Studio. It's episode 60 for us, and it's a special episode. It's the week of UFC 209, and we were talking about this a couple of months ago when the fight was originally announced. We are both so excited for Habib versus Tony Ferguson. For, for the third time, we've been excited about it. Correct. They each pulled out once, and we'll get to that in detail. And we said to ourselves, we have to do a special preview for that show because this is unprecedented, Gumby. These are two fighters. One, Tony Ferguson, is on a nine-fight win streak. Habib is on an eight-fight win streak. 17 straight wins between them and fighting for an interim title. That's only in the UFC, too, because Habib has got, what, like 24 now. If you add in Habib's wins from Russia and the Ukraine, it's 33 straight wins between them. I tried to go back and just look at lightweight title fights to see if anything came close, and nothing the answer happened. is nothing comes close. No. You know, to have two fighters and just keeping it in the UFC, one on a nine-fight win streak, one on an eight-fight win streak... It's really incredible, and we're going to talk about this because we're going to go through both their careers and talk about how did we get to this point to have these two fighters with these two very unique styles. I think of Tony as uh, the most almost one of the most all-around fighters in the game today between his knockout power, his funky striking, the way he works off his back, and power submissions. His darts choke is the best in the game. Yeah, it's really super tight. And then you think of Habib, and, you know, he his ground control, and you could check out Robin Black's breakdown of this fight. Uh, He he does very popular breakdown series for TSN Canada, and he said it best. His ground control might be the best ever. The way he isolates arms, his ground and power, it's so nasty uh and it's really one of my favorite styles to watch as a grappling nerd and here we are they're fighting each other yeah and it's really really exciting too because you know the style makes fights cliche is so overdone but this is one of the weirdest matchups in styles i've ever seen before and we will get to that when we preview the actual matchup itself. Right now, I want to go through these two fighters' careers, and this will be the first half of our show before we do an interview, and then we'll preview the rest of UFC 209. But I want to delve deep, go in through the annals of history, and go through these two fighters' careers. So let's get right into it. Uh, the year was 2011 when the UFC met Tony Ferguson. It was on The Ultimate Fighter Season 13, which I will remind you was Junior Dos Santos versus... Versus Brock Lesnar. The fight never happened either, right? That wound up being 
That's correct. It was Shane Carwin had to stub in for Brock Lesnar, yep. who Brock had actually beat the year before. So it was not, that was actually, you know, when you think about it, that af- following Rampage and Rashad, it just almost became a cliche of the coaches don't end up fighting. Yeah. And Chuck and Tito the next year, right? Yeah, which wound up being Rich Franklin, right? Is that? Yeah, that's yeah. what happened. So it was part of that, uh, you know, at this point, the middle life of Tough, you know, Tough now going on its 23rd, 24th season. Uh, but Tony Ferguson was a 10 and 2 pro coming out of the Pure Combat League. He was their welterweight champion. Uh, and this was one of those seasons that did not have the the fight-in show where you have to win a fight to get into the house. They just had their 14, 15 fighters to come into the house. Tony was picked third by Team Lesnar. People picked ahead of him, Gumby. Len Bentley, Charlie Rader, Shamar Bailey, and Ryan McGilvery. Yeah, it, crazy to think that those people, on paper or, or in the, you know... It, what do they do? They usually stick him in the gym, right? Right. Looked just better in the gym than he did. And it's just shocking to me. And here we are all these years later with Tony being the one fighting for a title. Brock Lesnar was his coach and said, I like Tony because, quote, he has a mean streak. And if there was ever someone to recognize a mean streak in another human being, it would be Brock Lesnar. Now, we wouldn't see Tony fight until episode six. Uh, Tony beat Justin Edwards, and it was actually on Tony's birthday. Um, and in that episode, as we get a little bit of the background on each fighter, we learn that uh, Tony liked to wear a suit to his fights from Jump Street. He liked to keep it classy. And he also kept a dream box that his parents gave him, and he would kiss every morning. Soulful guy. Uh, I'll also remind uh, listeners that this was the Tony Ferguson who didn't have all the wings on his back tattoo drawn in. <laughs> they were just outlined because times were tough at that point. He would go on to fill in the ink later on as he started making money. But in the fight, uh, Tony actually gets taken down twice, uh, which is a rare thing uh, to see. But in the second time he got taken down, he knocks out Justin Edwards with a brutal uh, up kick. The crazy striking we'd see from Tony wasn't on display just yet, but you could tell he had very fast hands. Uh, Dana White, quote, after the fight, that's the shit that makes you want to get out of bed on a Saturday and come watch a fight. He said that looking very hungover. Um, exciting fight, and Justin Edwards ended up in the UFC. Yeah, Justin Edwards wound up in the UFC, and it, it's actually interesting to note, too, that Justin Edwards is not the kind of guy who gets knocked out very easily professionally he's only been knocked out once if you don't count being on the ultimate fighter brandon thatch is the only guy ever to knock out justin edwards he's been on a really awesome streak outside of the ufc and he's heading on to uh the ultimate fighter redemption series now too he's oh this coming spring yeah this coming spring so justin edwards gonna get his second chance on the ultimate fighter but i i I just remember that up kick and just being like he is the type of guy who does anything to win it tony is tony yeah and and you just see that as a first impression it's spot on it's exactly what you come to expect from him yes very foreshadowing uh we would see him fight again in episode nine it was funny in the training montages leading up to the fight uh, Brock was a little worried after how wild the first wi- uh, after how wild the first fight was, and had this to say of Tony: 
Once he gets into a dominant position, he's a little bit fancy. He said that in a pejorative uh, declarative statement. He didn't like how fancy he would get. But well, Brock Lesnar is one of the least fancy people you know, right? Just dirty way to do it. So. Yeah, get in a good position and just pound a face. <laughs> uh, so Tony fought uh, Ryan McGilvery. Um, he got him with an uppercut a few seconds into the first round. Uh, and that was it. This moves him into the semifinals. Brock declares him the best guy in the house. Yeah, and it, I, I think it was obvious at that point, too, because that uppercut was so devastating. Um, and, and, and that was really the beginning of that uppercut because you see that all the time now. Also, you know, fun to note, McGilvery never been knocked out professionally. Wow. So, you know, two names that you might not know offhand right away. But two super tough dudes. Uh, now, it wouldn't be a tough season without some tomfoolery, without a little ballyhoo. And unfortunately, it's the subject of the show who gets caught up in the crosshairs of a Ultimate Fighter drinking night uh, after the Ryan McGilvery fight. Uh, the fighters are back at the house. They're doing shots, celebratory mood. Uh, Ramsey Nijum stripped on the pool table. Um, <laughs> Ramsey. Everyone seemed to be having fun, but then shit got a little dark. Uh, Charlie Radar uh, pours some liquid on Tony Ferguson's head, and Tony Ferguson leaps over a leather couch crashes into a coffee table and tackles Charlie Radar. Um, they giggle at first, kind of just fun stuff, but then Tony puts his forearm on Charlie's throat, and now we get the uh, you know typical two drunk guys trying to decide if they want to fight or not. And waste their career. And Right, exactly. Thank God they didn't, right? Thank God they he didn't. He could have gone the Jesse Taylor route. <laughs> now, very odd, though, because if you don't know Tony from The Ultimate Fighter and you've just seen him rise up the ranks, this is a uh, a dark moment, I think, in, in Tony's life. And, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Unfortunately, what happens in the Ultimate Fighter house does not stay in the Ultimate Fighter house. Everyone talks about it and can get dissected. Um, Tony yelled uh, to Charlie, where's your kid at? Where's your kid at? Hit me and see your kid. Apparently, Charlie was having a custody dispute over his child. This instantly turns Tony Ferguson into the, quote, heel of the house. Everyone's hating on him. Uh, Tony jumps in the pool to call uh, to cool off. People start saying they lost respect for Tony. Quote, don't talk about another man's son, said everyone. And the episode ends with Chuck O'Neill, uh, who is going to fight Tony in the semifinals. He says, I'm going to take Tony's dreams away. As a big Tony fan, uh, Gumby, what did you make of this dark moment on The Ultimate Fighter? Yeah, I, w I would be honest that I, in saying that I was more of a fan of his style then and less of a fan of him just because... I I watch The Ultimate Fighter, but I hate it for that kind of stuff. Yeah. I hate the in-house crap. I, I will also say it's it's entrapment. They put these guys in a house it, with it liquor. stock them with as much booze as it, they want. You know, like, and it's right after he won. Not that it's an excuse. You know, you should never say shit like that. At this point in time, it's five, six years ago. Hopefully, he's matured uh, from there. But um, as we later learn, Chuck O'Neill does not take his dream away. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. So it's episode 10 now. Tony faces Chuck O'Neill. Um, also a tough guy, should be noted. He fights in CES all the time, and he's a, still a hell of a regional he, talent. New England fighter. He's yeah. originally from he, New England, from, right? He's yeah. from Massachusetts, and uh, he's a professional wrestler now, too, along with Matt Riddle. <laughs> he's part of a tag team with Matt Riddle. All right, there you go. Uh, 
the more you know. Uh, Tony bloodies uh, Chuck O'Neill up in the second round, drops him in the third with a shot, um, hits him with a left to the chin, and then a right to the body, and this drops uh, Chuck O'Neill. Referee steps in, Tony's the winner, and Dana says, quote, this proves Tony is for real. Yeah, and, and it was another one of those moments where it was just like, it seemed like everything was being unveiled that he could do this one more thing every time. You know, like the up kick was just a way of like desperately saving himself. The second knockout was was the vicious uppercut. We've come to know that he has that like leaping front uppercut, and now he, we know he works the body well too. It, it was just like a really nice way of slowly unveiling what he really has. Great point. So now we go to Tony's actual UFC debut. It's June fourth, two thousand eleven. It's the Tough Thirteen final, and it's first Ramsey Nijum. Uh, what was your impressions of Ramsey Nijum going into this fight? You see, I thought he was a really good grappler. I was really impressed with his wrestling on the show. I remember him having lots of dominant positions, but it seemed like he couldn't get anything going here against Tony in the grappling department. It, Tony's defensive grappling was really strong. Yeah, so Tony decided to work out of half guard a lot, actually. He was on top working out of half guard, trying to come down with elbows, uh, fists, uh, Ramsey went for a reversal, uh, from the ground, actually like a typical wrestler switch. Mm-hmm. Tony turned it into an omoplata attempt, uh, very fancy, very cool. And then he caught Ramsey with a left hook out of nowhere. Um, and that ended and Ramsey the- went out cold. Yeah, it, it was a straight KO. And, uh, that was in the first round, three minutes, 54 seconds into the first round to become the ultimate fighter. And I think that was, you know, Hey, Tony has arrived here and we knew we had a, uh, super prospect on our hands. And it was back when you felt like super prospects came out of the ultimate fighter too. So there was that like feeling of hype. I, I thought there was genuine happiness as he was receiving the plaque from Dana White. Um, his quote in the in octagon interview, I brought a lot of inner demons with me. But I have a lot of guardian angels looking out for me. I have kids who look at me as a role model. And, you know, I think that was uh, him turning face, as they say in pro wrestling, uh, after the ugliness of the uh, the in-house drinking uh, incident with Charlie Rader. All right. So now uh, it's September, three months later, and Tony's going to be fighting Aaron Riley on the prelims of John Jones versus Rampage Jackson at UFC 135. It should be noted he won the Ultimate Fighter at welterweight. This is his 155 debut. Um, he, he knocked those dudes out at welterweight. I mean, he had four knockouts. Only guy to go through the entire Ultimate Fighter with knockouts. He did it a weight class up. Yeah, and you know, it also is worth saying one was with his foot on an up kick, one was with a vicious uppercut, and one was with a body shot. One was with a body shot. I mean, so insane. Yeah. All right, so he's fighting Aaron Riley, 155 pound debut. This is the undercard on Spike back when there were only two prelims <laughs> uh before the pay-per-view, the rest were on Facebook. Um and- Facebook prelims blowed. Just <laughs> Side note there. <laughs> uh, Riley was 30 and 12 at this point, sort of a journeyman pro fighter. Uh, first round, an uppercut broke Riley's jaw. Uh, Riley goes back to his corner between rounds one and two. It's actually uh, Jackson Winklejohn, and he says, My jaw is broken, yeah. and Winklejohn can clearly be heard saying, fuck and you get a doctor's stoppage because they're not going to let him fight with a broken jaw what was your impression of that uh second fight in the ufc i mean another really tough dude in aaron riley if you look at the people he's fought at this point 
nothing to write home about, right? Because Aaron Riley is probably the most impressive name, and he's like a journeyman at this point in time, Ramsey Nijem being the other one. But it's the developing of skills that I think gets really exciting is that he landed so much to Aaron Riley's head who, who, like you said, had Jackson Winklejohn in his corner. Those are like the smartest guys out there. They keep you from getting hit. And Riley, I mean, he just slammed him, and you know his power is there if he's breaking people's jaws. All right, so now we'll move to December of 2011. So note, this is Tony's third fight in the UFC in about uh, six months, and he's fighting the veteran Eve Edwards. Uh, And this is the second veteran name in a row now. So I think you see that the UFC is doing their typical matchmaking where they're going to take this hot prospect and have him make a name for himself by beating more established fighters. Yeah, and that's the way they used to do it. They used to do that a lot better. You know, like, I mean, Tony had 12 wins at this point. He's 12 and 2. And he's facing off with a guy with almost... I want to say like 60 pro fights at this point in time. You know, Eve Edwards, I, I don't know if he's still fighting, but if he is, he's he is. probably damn near close to 70 fights. It, I mean, he's he's just one of those guys who took every fight all the time, especially in like the days where they used to let you fight every weekend. So this was actually on the main card. It was the Ultimate Fighter finale, Bisping versus Team Miller, took place in Las Vegas. Oh, and Tony Ferguson won a unanimous decision. Really no controversy here, but uh, just an impressive name to put on his resume. He's now 3-0. and Yeah, I, I remember that being in the one, UFC. one of his less impressive fights, to be honest with you. It was. Just, yeah, the, there just wasn't a lot. Like I said, the, that de- constant development of his striking game uh, seemed to be what was really interesting about him. And nothing new seemed to come out of this. Um, and, and I think that's that. some of that is due to kind of trying to figure out where his camp was supposed to be because I know some of that was going on at this point. All right, so we go a month later and the world now gets introduced to Habib Nurmagomedov and he's going to be fighting Kamal Shalarus. This is January 2012, as mentioned. It's uh, Gallard versus Miller on FX. This would be a prelim. Now, Habib is 16-0 and as a pro. He made his debut in 2008, four years prior, fought only in Russia and the Ukraine Uh of his 16 wins, he had four triangle submissions, one armbar, one Kimura, and five TKOs. So he had 11 finishes out of the 16 wins. Uh, so I think the UFC knew they had a hot prospect on their hands when they brought him in. Well, and it, it was part of the, like, the Russian explosion, too. At this time, they're signing uh, a whole bunch of Russians, including uh, his buddy Adlan Amagov was getting signed at that time, and, and a couple of others, too. So I think it was when they first started tapping into that Russian market. Uh, Habib was sponsored by Ammo to Go in the days before the Reebok <laughs> fight kit. Uh, the condom depot. <laughs> John Hannock notes that there are, quote, no nerves on this kid. Uh, Habib actually nails Shalarus with a big uh, shot. It was like a shovel hook left. Uh, landed right on the button. You could see that Shalarus was stunned in the first round. He made it to the second, though. Habib largely controlled the second. Uh, actually got stood up twice uh, while working on the ground. Um, big CTE alert here, Gumby. Shalaroos, between round two and three, Shalaroos goes back to his corner and repeatedly asks, what round is it? What round is it? <laughs> um, that was kind of scary to watch. Shalaroos was a high-level re- wrestler. He was able to grab a shitty guillotine at one point in the third. That is something uh, that we will see a couple of times in Habib's fights. He's never been close to being submitted, but he has been caught in some shitty guillotines, which I guess is just a price you pay when you're shooting so many takedowns. Yeah, and it's it's the price he pays for shooting so many takedowns. There's just like a the, the probability that some of them will land. 
but also in that too that you know he's he's got a big head i mean like let's be honest it, and it takes more effort for him to slip out of those with such a big head uh the finish came when habib got uh control of shallows on the ground in the third slipped in a rear naked choke shallows was actually on his side yeah it was like up against the cage right uh, yeah i think so and shallows was on his side and he, he still got the rear naked choke just from a weird angle it's pretty impressive and john anik uh quote you better learn how to pronounce that name. Uh, he's my favorite fighter right now. I still don't know how to pronounce his name, but we definitely all learned it. Yeah, and, and you know, Kamal Shalarus, again, not a name that a lot of people have heard here, but this is a guy uh, who had two straight wins in WEC when WEC got bought out. Uh, one over Bart Polaszewski, who wound up fighting in the UFC as well. Uh, and then he lost to Jim Miller, Habib Nurmagomedov, and Rafael Dos Anjos in the UFC before he got fired. I mean, th- murderers row. Yeah, think about getting three lightweights. That's a tougher gauntlet than that. <laughs> uh, and he's had you know some success otherwise. But I think what you're saying there too about him being such a good wrestler is a good point. Like right away, he got dominated on the ground by a guy who instantly showed he's better than you know, your standard Greco-Roman or standard freestyle wrestlers. And thank you for bringing that up. I I failed to mention this. Habib was a Sambo champion growing up in Russia, and his dad was a freestyle wrestling coach. So Habib, and Habib also a black belt in judo, Habib is like this great amalgamation of grappling. He has a wrestling background, the Sambo background, the judo background. Absolutely. All right, so... uh, Habib now one and zero in the UFC. We fast forward five months. It's now May of 2012. Tony Ferguson is set to fight Michael Johnson, and now the UFC has quit uh, giving Tony Ferguson big names or veterans. They're going straight prospect versus prospect. Um, this was Diaz versus Miller on Fox, uh, and MJ ended up winning this fight uh, via decision. And outstruck him, if you're into uh, fight metric uh, strikes, uh, he outstruck him 67 to 45. First round, Tony did get knocked down, and that's something we will see as we go through each of these fights. Tony has gotten knocked down a number of times, but here's the thing about Tony Ferguson. He is the classic bend, never breaks, very tough man to put out. no one has in the UFC. Uh, he did get wobbled in the third round, but again, stayed standing. Lots of booze in this fight, as both fighters, I think, were very careful not to over-engage, but MJ walks away with the win. Yeah, and I, I think what is the thing that gets Tony tagged is what Michael Johnson does so well, is when Michael Johnson strikes with combinations, he strikes with combinations coming forward. And I think that's typically when you see Tony Ferguson get hit more is if you throw a combination from the pocket or you throw a combination from a standstill position, he's pretty good at moving his head and getting out of the way. But it's when you force him to go back, he gets hit. And I think that's why Michael Johnson wound up outstriking him because, as you know, Michael Johnson doesn't go back. I mean, Michael Johnson goes forward. That's how he beat uh, Edson Barboza all those times ago. He is actually a really good striking style to beat technical strikers. Uh, I also want to just mention that um, this was on the prelim, so he, Tony has not moved to the uh, main card. It takes him a long-ass time to get to the main card. Yeah, and we will uh, we will get to that. So uh, <laughs> now Tony is 3-1 and one in the UFC. Uh, we move forward. It's July of 2012, and Habib is back, and he's fighting 
Gleason Tebow. This is on the prelims of Silva versus Sonnen 2, a pay-per-view. Uh, Habib at this point was fighting out of Fairfield, New Jersey. Uh, he had not moved to AKA I think yet. He still does work occasionally with those people there too. Okay, um, Mike Constantino and those guys at that. Um, I forget, the name escapes me right away, but. But, yeah, I think he still occasionally works with them. Um, T-Bow was actually on a three-fight win streak at this point. Um, Habib got stuffed on his takedowns in this fight, uh, but was able to control T-Bow up against the fence and do damage that way. Uh, in fact, T-Bow took, uh, took down Khabib twice, yeah. which we'll never really see again for the rest of uh, the fights that we're about to go through. But what ended up happening was Habib won a unanimous decision. Um, if you go to MMADecisions.net, which is a great website, uh, the majority of media members gave it to Habib, but four uh, dissenting media members did say T-Bow. 54% of the fans who voted gave it to T-Bow. This is by far and away Habib's uh, probably worst performance in the UFC. Yeah, I, I watched it and gave it to T-Bow. Um, and even rewatching it, I mean, when you think about you know the, the criteria, effective striking, grappling... An octagon control. I mean, yeah, he controlled the octagon, but his grappling was not even close to effective. I think he was like something like 0 for 13 on takedowns on Gleason Tebow. And I think it largely had to do with the fact that um, with Gleason Tebow fighting with one leg so far in front of the other, Habib only got in on singles. You'll notice he doesn't ever really get, if you watch that fight again, he never really gets his hands together. For like a body lock or a really good double leg, he winds up with a lot of singles in, and he has trouble getting a, an experienced grappler like Tebow to the ground with singles. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Habib was 0 for 13 uh, by official scoring on those takedowns. So very interesting. Again, the parallel careers. You know, they debuted six months apart. Tony had his worst loss. Um, in May, and then three months later, Habib, even though it was a win, his it worst performance loss, yeah, yeah, in July. Okay, now we go again. Habib's back. It's January of 2013, uh, and Habib is taking on Tiago Tavares in Brazil. And this is where I think Habib kind of broke through on the mainstream, and I thought this was very smart. We talk about this on the show a lot. How do you stand out in the UFC? Well, how about you go down to Brazil, and at the weigh-ins, you wear a shirt <laughs> that says, that. if Sambo was easy, it would be called Jiu-Jitsu. Got a lot of hate online, uh, but, you know, controversy creates uh, creates cash, good hate. Um, Habib dropped Tiago Tavares with strikes, but then finishes him with elbows. Finishes him with elbows all in the first round. And if you've never seen this, I highly recommend you go back and watch it. Uh, this is a brutal ground and pound, and really a very brutal late stoppage. Uh, there are about five elbows that come into Tiago Tavares's jaw that it could have been stopped earlier. And it's kind of crazy too to think about because until he fights. Way later, you know, when he fights probably the Daryl Horcher fight, um, which is, I mean, years and years later, you don't really see that brutal ground and pound out of him again. I mean, you see him trying to rain down strikes from the top, but but never like anything landing clean like it did against Tavares. It's very clean. It's very violent. Tiago was 17 and four at the time, had plenty of UFC victories. It was a very nice win for Habib. So, again, that is in... Um, that is in January of 2013. I want to make a note here. You fast forward four months later, April of 2013. Uh, 
a featherweight made his debut against Marcus Brimage, and his name was Connor McGregor. And I wanted to make a note of that, Gumby, because uh, something Habib says uh, later on in his career about what happens when the UFC marketing machine gets behind you uh, is never more apparent than Tony and Habib and the rise of Connor because Tony and Habib have been there all along racking up wins. They, they already had yeah. four wins apiece and, and, at this point almost. And, and you, know? you know, Habib with the elbows to Tiago Tavares, uh, Ferguson with the brutal uppercuts, a body shot. I mean, they both had spectacular wins, but I, the marketing machine did not get behind these two fighters really until the last year. And, and we'll see that as we go along here. Um, Habib uh, would fight Abel Trujillo in May of 2013. This was on uh, Velasquez versus Bigfoot 2. This, this is one of the, the most impressive takedown <laughs> series you'll ever it, see in your life. This was on the FX, FX prelims, and we'll fast forward to what happened. It's, it's a unanimous decision win for Habib, but he sets a record 21 takedowns in a three-round fight. If you want to get your kids into grappling, wrestling, sambo, show them this fight. Yeah. It's a takedown clinic. Well, it, it is a takedown clinic. Some of those numbers are a little skewed, though, because I, I think a lot of the takedowns came with he had a body lock on Trujillo, and Trujillo was like on all fours, basically, you know, like on his hands and, and feet. He was still on his feet, but Habib would shuck him to the ground from there, pushing him forward until his hands collapsed, then try to get some top game going in. And Trujillo kept working up from that position. But again, it, it brings me back to my original point uh, about his takedowns that he works way better with a body lock or a double than he does that single leg um, because Trujillo kept giving him the double leg. Yeah, I, I'm not going to split hairs. It's 21 awesome takedowns. It's a fun fight to watch. It brought Habib to 4-0 and in the UFC. Also worth mentioning, after Tony Ferguson loses to uh, Michael Johnson, he ends up getting uh, surgery on his shoulder, I believe it is, and he's out for about a year and a half. The Michael Johnson loss happens in May of 2012, and we're not going to see Tony again until, of, uh, until October of 2013. Uh, so here we are in September of 2013, and you have Habib versus uh, Pat Healy. Yeah, Bam Bam was actually on you know one of the hottest streaks at that point in time. He had come over from Strike Force, where he had won, I, I mean, like five or six in a row uh, after losing to Josh Thompson for the title. Um, it, it, he came over to the UFC and beat Jim Miller in his first fight, a huge fight of the night, um, where he actually choked out Jim Miller. So. Uh, Habib, got overturned because of the marijuana. But. Yeah, which at that point was still canceling uh, your fight results. But, uh, you know, amazing victory for Habib. But at the same time, uh, I think Healy showed some weakness in his striking there. Uh, so this was a blood and guts fight. Uh, there were some exciting moments. Uh, definitely Pat Healy had a couple of shots that landed on Habib. Uh, he, again, Habib got stuck in like a shitty guillotine that I don't think was ever really close, but his head was stuck in there yeah, for a minute. I, I think that is due to his big head. I mean, <laughs> I just have to believe that. And this kicked off the main card. I do want to say of Jones versus Gustafsson, September of 2013. So now, uh, Habib has moved to a main card pay-per-view fighter, uh, uh, but he gets the win. It was a unanimous decision victory, and it's a fun fight to go back and watch. Yeah, and it, one of the things that stuck out to me in here is when he gets tagged, it seems to be the same, or actually the, the exact opposite instance of when Tony Ferguson gets tagged, right? We talked about Tony Ferguson getting tagged when his opponent is moving forward and throwing combinations. 
to me, Habib gets tagged in this when Habib is moving forward and throwing combinations because he throws with his hands much lower than your average, like, boxer. Um, in his combinations, his hands stay down, and Healy was able to take advantage of that here. So it's almost like both of their weaknesses are at the same time, right? Like, if Habib moved forward, it would be Tony's weakness and his own weakness. So it'll be interesting to see if that does come out. Uh, Tony comes back now a month later versus Mike Rio. It's October of 2013. This is on the Facebook prelims. <laughs> I, uh, again, I can't reiterate how much I hated Facebook prelims. <laughs> uh, he had to put plates and screws in his arm, mind you. And this is on the Facebook prelims of Dos Santos versus Velasquez 3, which is a great fight in and of itself. Rio was 9-2 and two at the time. He had finished uh, 8 of those 9 wins, 4 KOs, 4 subs. He was a tough alumni of Cruz versus Faber, known for his grappling. Right off the bat, Tony stuffs a takedown, and uh, Joe Rogan, uh, with foreshadowing of things to come, says, Tony has a great darse. And uh, it happens again. <laughs> Tony sprawls, gets a nasty knee to the neck, a left hook stuns Rio, and then Tony just rolls for that darce. And he does something very intriguing on his darce Gumby, which is the free arm of his opponent. He will actually hook with his legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's really an interesting finish to the darce for, for people who don't grapple because you don't typically see people doing that with the leg. Um, but it does lock the opponent down pretty good. Um, and, and, you know, Mike Rio, not an impressive opponent, but uh, it is interesting to see him get a submission win against the guy known for his submission offense. Um, now, it's also worth noting that because he was on the Facebook prelims, maybe it's the UFC's way of just trying to see what do they have in this guy again, you know, coming off the arm injury and the plates and the screws. Uh, but this would kick off the nine fight win streak. It's fight win number one of a nine fight win streak on the Facebook prelims. <laughs> on the Facebook prelims. So now we'll move to April of 2014 and you have Habib versus future lightweight champ RDA. This is UFC on Fox. It's the FS1 prelims of Verdum versus Brown. Uh, Habib hits six takedowns of RDA and ragdolled RDA like no one else has up to this point. Um, after it, it, it wasn't much different RDA though. You do have to say, uh, He's much more wrestle heavy now, would you say? Eh, I don't. I think he was on the upswing. He had started working with that guy Nick Curson at this point, and right after this fight, RDA went and reeled off three wins in 2014. So this is that RDA now. With RDA though, I don't know. You know the the tough stringent steroid testing, the amount of weight he lost uh, from when he defended the title against Cerrone to the next time we saw him against. It, it, there's it something like a different. RDA to me, I, I, I won't blame it on steroids because I obviously don't know, but it, it does seem like he was a much different fighter at that point. But it is also important to note that while Habib got six takedowns, he also whiffed on probably at least six, I would guess. I bet you he was at 500 or lower than 500 in that fight, um, which, which is another important thing to note is, is that he is, even with getting a lot versus RDA, Shalarus, things like that, he is missing a lot too. Yeah, I, but I, I don't really think that matters. I mean, well, it might not matter when, when we break down this fight with with Tony Ferguson, but it is important to note that like his takedown percentage against guys who have a wrestling background like Charles Roos, like Gleason Tebow, like RDA, 
he's probably hovering around the one-third mark for hitting takedowns on those three guys if you put those fights together. Well, it depends on... Tebow obviously hurts that stat a lot. It depends on how you count that, though. I mean, if he's a grappler going for takedowns, you're not just going to walk in and take someone down at will. No one had taken down RDA more than... Two times up to the... Actually, no. One time. Sorry. Jason High, three. (laughs) Jason High got three. Three. Yeah. That's it. So this... I mean, this... If you go back and watch that, he ragdolled RDA. Yeah, no. I'm not taking anything away from him on those takedowns. It it is just, to me, important to know that he does fail on a fair fair few of them as well. Okay. I mean, I think his whole game is predicated on the takedown, so I don't expect a 100% conversion mm-hmm. rate. Although I think there was a 100% on uh, Abel Trujillo. Yeah, but Abel <laughs> Trujillo is just horrible. Um, again, I want to note, Habib did get stuck in another guillotine on one of these takedowns, <laughs> so that's something to, to note. Uh, he did outstrike RDA 36-21. to 21. It was a unanimous decision. Uh, if you go back and watch this fight in the third round, he has a just picture perfect beautiful could be on a gatorade commercial uh judo uh throw it's a fucking thing of beauty please go back and watch it uh joe rogan at this point says people are avoiding fighting habib now uh he says joe rogan says he wants habib versus anthony pettis uh that would have been terrible by the way yeah knowing what we know about pettis now uh that would have been so ironic because pettis was seen as this like striker who could stop takedowns and it was before clay guida did Clay Guida wrestle the shit out of him? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now I think you have, this was uh, Habib's coming out party in yeah, April but, of 2014. But then you don't get to see him again for, for well, a while. Yeah. So that's the next note. So Habib was briefly linked to fight Donald Cerrone in September of 2014 at UFC 178. However, um, he had to pull out because he suffered a knee injury and we would not see him again until the spring of 2016 as he re-injured that knee and we'll go along here and I'll tell you when he re-injures it so we'll keep moving along with tony tony fights katsunari kikono uh in may of 2014 one month later this is at barrow dillashaw on the fs1 prelims it's ufc 173 he got off facebook he got off facebook (laughs) now um Kakuno would end up with a two and three record in the ufc uh he was a well-known name at that point uh coming from japan uh, Tony tagged him with in multiple exchanges, bloodied his nose right away, just tagged him for the better parts of two minutes. And then this is something that I do love about Tony. Even though he's winning the game on the feet, he goes, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to go for an Iminari roll. Uh, he didn't work, but he ends up suplexing him, taking the back. That's definitely the Eddie Bravo slash 10th Planet <laughs> influence, I think, there. Uh, rolls for an armbar, moves to Spiderweb, and ends up going for a Darce from a funky angle. Uh, doesn't get it they stand back up and tony gets a walk-off right hook so between tagging him and knocking him out tony went for an imminari roll suplexes him rolls for an arm bar goes into spider web goes for a darce but ends up just finishing him with his fists tony says uh afterwards that the biggest motivator for him right now is getting his brown belt in the 10th planet jiu-jitsu system yeah and like i said i i think that's why you saw that creativity on the ground i mean the the introduction of him using the Darius choke, I think you can see 
probably run right along with his path with Eddie Bravo and with the 10th Planet guys. You see him start to integrate those really long limbs as he moved away from Team Team Death Clutch. Is yeah, the, with Brock Lesnar in the Midwest. Um, and Cole Conrad and those guys. So I think once you saw him start to work with Bravo on the grappling, he saw how much better his body was suited for that kind of game versus the Brock Lesnar power wrestle kind of game. Yeah, and I also want to mention, so this is May of 2014. You go forward two months later to July of 2014, uh, and you have Connor's coming out party, uh, Fight Pass main event in Dublin. It's Connor versus Diego Brandau. Connor was 2-0 and at that point in the UFC. At this point, Tony is 5-1, and just getting off the Facebook prelims. And he's... And he's main eventing. Main eventing. So you see just with that UFC PR machine, when it decides to get behind you, you know, that rocket is on your back and you're going to the moon. And if it isn't, you are going to have to work for every win you get. And and that being said, Tony's pretty damn good on the mic, too. That's the other thing that gets constantly overlooked is, you know, maybe it's the Irish thing. Maybe it's how good Connor is on the mic. But but there is some clear uh, mic similarities between them even i mean i connor's one of the greatest all-time shit talkers and he he had the ireland behind him so i get it i mean it makes sense but it doesn't mean you can't push both yeah well it certainly is if not we're not arguing why they pushed one and didn't push the other because obviously connor's made him an ass load of cash so they have to be happy with that but it's interesting to see that like what could have happened to his career so much earlier i mean he's getting the title shot now but I mean, what if he had gotten pushed back then? Uh, so the UFC does give him a pretty big billing uh, in the next fight. It's August of 2014. It's a card that was just ravaged by injuries. It ended up being Dillashaw versus Soto in the main oh, event. God. It was supposed to be Dillashaw versus Barrow. And Ferguson is going to fight Danny Castillo in what ends up being the co-main event of a pay-per-view. It was actually supposed to be on an FS1 show, and they had to move it. Terribly ordered pay-per-view. Too, yeah, right? <laughs> just an awful pay-per-view. But uh, let's not you know, take away from the fact that the UFC was obviously doing two big prospects versus each other. Castillo was 7-3 and three in the UFC here, fighting with Team Alpha Male. Um, they love their alpha male guys. They love their alpha male guys. But right off the bat, uh, Tony has a new weapon in this fight. He's using lots of leg kicks. Uh, in the first round, he ends up going for a darse uh, from standing, which is something he likes to do, going for a darse from standing. It ends up on the ground. Uh, and again, on the darse attempt, Tony likes to wrap his legs around the free arm, which you never really see. Tony absolutely won round one. Uh, he had two submission attempts, got the better of Danny Castillo on his feet. The second round, Danny Castillo gets a takedown outside strikes Tony, but was largely inactive on the top. Um, If you want to go by signature strikes, it was 23 to 23. If you like signature signature strikes over the three rounds, 23 to 23. And uh, largely uh, all three judges gave Castillo the third round. So actually it was the second that was in question. Yeah. Ferguson. I I remember that too. And significant strikes is really hard to use too. Ferguson, just to be complete, Ferguson ends up getting a split decision win. One judge happened to give him uh, the second round. Uh, If you go by MMADecisions.net, the nine to six media members were for Ferguson. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. And I I think part of the problem there is is saying significant strikes because a significant strike is anything that lands and does damage. That's how I think fight metric 
count it. But if you look at the amount of damage Tony did in those fights, again, not his best performance. Yeah, not um, his best performance. Castillo, by the way, was two of eight for takedowns. I actually would have counted a third when I went back and rewatched this fight. Um, he ended. It's a, weird what they pick and what it's they what they right? pick and what they don't pick. He ended the fight with he, Castillo. Ended the fight going for an arm triangle that looks semi legit. Again, I'm not mad that Tony got it. It was a close fight and just one that was tough to score because it really depends on, you know, what you count in round two for uh, Castillo being on top. But you know what? Tony was pretty active from his back. I think a good comparison for recent would be the Magni versus Johnny Hendricks fight. Yeah. All right. So or, or even the, the Roy Nelson, Derek Lewis fight. Uh, Tony would go on to the UFC 181 main card. He's kicking off the pay-per-view, uh, UFC 181, UFC 181 was in December. So Tony's turning around three months later. Um, and he's fighting, uh, Abel Trujillo, uh, and, uh, who got absolutely ragdolled by Habib. Now, there's certainly a common opponents, which is kind of interesting to me, too, uh, especially when we're going to break down later who we think is going to win. Uh, Trujillo, at this point, is now 3-1-1 one, and one in his UFC career. Uh, after the loss to to Nurmi, he ends up winning uh, two and losing one. Trujillo had his moments in the first, actually. He did knock Tony down. Uh, again, the bend never break. Tony has gotten knocked down. And, and it's that moving forward again, too, because when Trujillo strikes, he's a moving forward kind of guy. And I will also say, Tony did get in a little trouble going for rubber guard, and you, you know we're all fans of the 10th Planet system at this podcast studio, but when he went for rubber guard and Trujillo was able to snap out of it, um, he landed a brutal strike to Tony on his back. So that's kind of the price you pay for being uh, active off your back sometimes in MMA. Especially with that system, too, because that system kind of leaves one of their hands free when you're isolating a shoulder. You know, so if he isolates the right shoulder, his left arm is, you know, almost free to punch Tony at will. Now, as the first round ended, uh, which Trujillo, I think, by most accounts, won, you started to see Tony come on, get that Tony Ferguson second wind, almost like a zombie. Trujillo started to look uh, a little drained. And in the second round, Ferguson locks up a nasty rear naked choke. Uh, Trujillo, his uh, leg is almost bent back, kind of caught on itself. But another submission win for our man, Tony Ferguson. Yeah, and I think that's the point you make there is the real first coming out of, of Tony Ferguson as a potential star for me. Not that those other wins aren't big or they, they weren't potential star makers, but that idea that his like long, lanky body holds up better than the big, muscly guys like Abel Trujillo and, and that's actually right around the time where we started to see more guys shaped like him take off. I mean, you, Conor McGregor was becoming big at that time. The heavyweights had gone back to being the, like, 240-pound lean heavyweights versus the, like, fucking enormous Shane Carwin, Brock Lesnar, Frank Muir when he got all super buff. So it, it was getting back to that, like, longer, leaner lasting longer guys become much, much more uh, likely to rise to the top. Tony's going to have a very quick turnaround. Two months later, he's fighting Gleason Tebow at February, uh, February 2015. This is the Rousey versus Zingano pay-per-view. This, again, kicked off the main card, so the UFC has now had him open the main card of a pay-per-view 
uh, two times in a row. Tony says he will not lose in his hometown of Los Angeles. Gleason Tebow was six and two since losing to Habib. So two common opponents in a row for each other. Uh, Gleason had just beat Norman Park and Gleason had been around the block for a long time at this point. He's been fighting in the UFC since 2006. Tony had a six inch reach advantage in this fight. He nails Gleason in the first with a right cross that sent him to the ground. Tony takes his back and another RNC rear naked choke earns a performance of the night. Joe Rogan calls it the biggest test of his career. Do you agree with that? That Gleason Tebow at that point was the biggest test of his career. When you think about Gleason Tebow as a, as an opponent, I mean, he is just like one of those super durable guys who had been around forever. He was over 40 fights at that point. Um, yeah, I'd probably say so because I, I still think he's probably a bigger deal than Michael Johnson in in the long span of things. Right. And in the post fight, uh, Tony says, when I saw his neck, all I thought was, quote, snap down city. Uh, <laughs> this was the fight that moved Tony into the top 10. And um, it's my memory, actually, that this is when I think the Internet started thinking of him as a potential title or future title contender. Yeah, and you see that with the next booking, too, which I'm sure you're about to take me to here. I am about to. Now, before we get to that, I do want to mention in May of 2015, Habib was slated to fight Donald Cerrone at UFC 187. He had to pull out of the bout uh, due to the same knee being re-injured in training. So he's been on the shelf now. Got to love that AKA injury train. Exactly. <laughs> for a year uh but you're right uh gumby because now the ufc knows what it has on its hands and they book tony in the co-main event of an fs1 show a midweek card in july of 2015 uh against josh thompson josh thompson uh was on a two-fight win streak after beating or sorry a two-fight losing streak after he beat nate diaz he lost to bobby green and benson henderson some people gave him the benson henderson fight excellent fight. fight Um, but he lost this to Tony via unanimous decision and ended up going to Bellator. We'll go into it a little bit in round one. Tony tries a flying knee. Thompson turns it into a takedown, but, uh, again, Tony being the innovative fuck that he is gets a inverted triangle off of that takedown by Thompson in the second, uh, Tony lands a huge elbow from standing ends up taking Thompson's back goes for a crucifix. Thompson is bleeding like a goddamn pro wrestler here. Uh, Ferguson goes for a nasty Kimura to end the second round. I was actually surprised Thompson got out of it. Round three is just more insane violence, a brutal knee to the body by Tony, more standing elbows. Thompson actually fired back and hit a spinning back fist. Uh, Thompson is one tough dude, and he actually ended the fight uh, on Tony's back, standing. But the whole fight was just violence. It earned Tony a performance of the night bonus. Which is, is so rare in a fight where he doesn't get a finish. Yeah. I mean, you. I, I don't know if I can think of any of those, because most recently when that UFC 208 only had one finish... They only gave one performance of the night. Right. Uh, so it, he didn't even, like, pick another guy who did really well. So the fact that all the way back then when they were being stingier with bonuses, too, it's crazy to me. So uh, we go now to December of 2015. That was the summer. And Tony and Habib are supposed to fight as two rising contenders. Habib has to pull out of the fight. And Edson Barbosa takes it on short notice one of the one of the best fights one of the best fights ever and it's back-to-back bloody violence by the way for tony um 
after very even back and forth exchange to start the fight, Ferguson uh, goes for actually gets an Imanari role. And this is so unique, Gumby. He manages to start landing strikes and elbows while holding uh, Barbosa in, you know, the setup to like a knee bar. And Brian Stan says, quote, I can't get over the innovation. And it is very innovative. Uh, now, a little controversy here as they're getting out of that uh, knee bar attempt position. Tony does like a spin kick from the ground. Barbosa, though, is also on the ground. That's an illegal strike. Tony gets a point taken away from him. You can see uh, Barbosa's eyes do roll back. He's a little stunned. Guy who looks like Newt Gingrich, the doctor, comes in to check on him and they take away a point from Tony. Uh, then it's the second round, and I highly recommend, if you haven't seen this fight, go back and watch it. The middle of the second round, about 2 minutes, 45 seconds uh, left in the fight, or left in the round, there is one of the wildest exchanges I've ever seen. Both guys covered in blood and landing. Barbosa, though, takes a deep breath. And then Ferguson gets snapped down city and it's Darce Vader. Edson, I am your father. He hits his Darce choke. It earns Tony both a performance and fight of the night. Yeah, he wins performance of the night. I, I want to say three, three times in a row there too, because he gets it with Lando, who we're going to see. That's correct. He fights next too. He, he gets um, three performance of the nights and three fight of the nights in a row. The Barbosa both doubled as a performance and fight. Yeah, just insane, insane run of, run of bonuses there. So, I do want to bring up Andrew Richardson was doing the recap on, on MMA Mania, and I thought this was really good, uh, just summation of the fight and of Tony Ferguson. Quote, Ferguson is mentally and physically one of the toughest and most durable fighters to ever compete in the lightweight division. He walked through some truly hellacious shots to the leg, body, and head. Never once did he let up on the pressure and back away from his goal. If we're being honest, Ferguson got his ass beat standing. His opponent landed far cleaner and harder shots and landed more of them, but it didn't matter. Ferguson is a terminator. He never stopped attacking his opponent. Yeah, and that, that makes sense, too, given Barbosa's striking background, that he would outstrike him. But the toughness there is is definitely the point. All right, so we now move to 2016, and Habib is finally back from <laughs> his injuries. So he was out two years because two recurring knee injuries, kind of similar to Dominic Cruz, but not as serious because Dominic Cruz had two ACL, actually three ACL surgeries, two on the same leg. But Habib hurt the same knee twice, had to have surgery on it once he's back now and he's supposed to fight tony ferguson but tony ferguson says well you pulled out once now i'm gonna pull out with a lung issue and daryl horcher gets the call on short notice this is a fox card glover uh Teixeira versus rashad evans is the main event this would be a uh, catch weight of 160 since horcher was taking it on short notice very short notice if i remember correctly too right it's like it's like a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, in round one, Habib picks Horcher up, carries him across the ring and slams him down. Very reminiscent of like a Matt, Matt Hughes. Hughes. Yeah. yeah. Um, Hughes. He starts raining punishment from half guard, does uh, Nurmagomedov, and he ends the round on uh, Horcher's back, just punishing him. Uh, round two, Habib again gets a slick judo toss uh, and then does my favorite thing in grappling, which is he isolates one one arm, gets a crucifix and just throws bombs. Uh, and for about 30 seconds in the crucifix, 
lands just 30 seconds of unanswered shots, it's actually a little tough to watch. I repeat, it's 30 to 40 seconds of elbows and punches to this dude's head. It's like if, if Roy Nelson had actually thrown bombs against Kimbo in the Ultimate Fighter. <laughs> it's that same kind of crucifix, yeah. And uh, so anyway, he ends up taking his back and just rains blows down uh, from the back, and the ref has no choice but to stop the fight. Habib motions for a title around his waist, and in the post-fight Octagon interview, Joe Rogan calls Habib arguably the best lightweight in the world. Yeah, and it's really interesting, too, that you mentioned his wrist control uh, for crucifix positions, because he's actually really good at that from the back, too, which I think you see a couple of times in this fight, is that he isolates somebody's wrist from underneath their armpit and pulls it in close to their body, almost so that they can't prop themselves up, and it, it aids his takedown. It also aids rear naked choke entries on the opposite side, um, which is just one of the more impressive things he does from a, a really small technical standpoint in grappling. Uh, we move now to July of 2016. Tony Ferguson's back. He's supposed to fight Michael Chiesa. Chiesa pulls out. This is on FS1. It's headlined by McDonald versus Lineker in South Dakota. Uh, this became the de facto co-main card. This became a de facto co-main event because after Michael Chiesa pulled out, they had Lando Veneta step up. He was an eight and zero prospect fighting uh, with uh, Jackson Wink. With Jackson Wink, uh, so you knew he was probably going to be good. This ended up being a fight of the night. Uh, what ended up happening was in the first round, really, actually. So if we say the Michael Johnson was a bad performance and we say that the first round of Abel Trujillo looked a little tricky and we say that the Danny Castillo fight was a little underwhelming. Actually the worst round I would say of Tony's career was that first round against Lando Veneta. I would a hundred percent agree. And I'm going to attribute that. And not that I'm making excuses for him, but I'm going to attribute that to think about what you've seen of from Lando since then, or if any highlights you've seen of him at all, you know, the, the spinning head kick to, to John McDessie. At, you know, in his next fight after, he's crazy innovative, spinning shit, all kinds of weird, no fear. Now think about who he was supposed to fight. He was supposed to fight Michael Chiesa. What do you know about Michael Chiesa? Uh, he's innovative. He has, you know, he, he's crazy kind of, like, kind of funky striking. It's funky striking, but it's not like spinning. It's funky striking as in like his, it's jerky and, and unpredictable. Lando's is very smooth. It's mm -hmm. not jerky at all. It's not like Michael Chiesa's. Where's Michael Chiesa the best? When he's grappling somebody up. Where was Lando Venata the best? Not when he's grappling somebody up. When he's throwing bombs. Right? So it's a very different type of fighter than what he prepared for. And I think also when you get those last second replacements, you expect him to be schmucks. Right? Lando Venata might be a lightweight challenger for the title one day, as good as he is and as young as he is. Yeah, no, Lando is for real. He's very legit. Again, though, first round, go back and watch it. Uh, it's it's really uh, just it's a striking clinic in a lot of ways. Uh, but Tony got some answers in as well. Then it becomes the second round. I think Lando did tire a little bit, taking the fight on short notice. And what happens? Guess, wait for it. Take a guess. Uh, Tony's going to get a Darce choke yeah. and the win. <laughs> and it's a fight of the night. Um, but very cool performance by Lando Veneta on short notice. So that's July of 2016. And I thought that was kind of interesting because in a three-month span, you basically had uh, pullouts galore and Habib kind of got oh, a nobody. A cupcake fight. A cupcake fight. And, to and Tony got a cupcake fight. His cupcake ended up being a very being deadly. A, being a much bigger, bigger killer than Daryl Horcher. Of course. Who, who I, I, wasn't 
fought since then. I, I, I'm not making this a comparison to that. I'm just saying it's interesting that you know they these, both got those kinds. They of it, just because of the way the pullouts were working. So now it's time to get them into title contention. So in because the, they're not already at this point, right? <laughs> exactly. So now it's uh, one week apart. Tony is going to fight uh, the former lightweight champ RDA. At the tough Latin America finale in Mexico City, this is on November 5th of 2016, it was the main event, RDA was coming off losing his title to Eddie Alvarez back in July, RDA looked very good in round one, landed on Tony a few times, but then then rounds two through five were really Tony just controlling the pace, putting RDA's back up against the fence, he outstruck... uh, RDA 199 to 121. He won the fight via unanimous decision. It was his ninth win in a row, an obvious record for lightweight. Uh, the one thing I will say about Tony, uh, he didn't really capture the moment with anything big. His post fight speech was just thank you and viva Mexico. Uh, but he did speak Mexican, which I know the UFC you mean, probably you mean loved. Spanish? So, sorry. <laughs> He did speak Spanish to the Mexican audience. Mexican's not a language. (laughs) Which the UFC probably loved, but he didn't, you know, in this age of marking, he did not capitalize. But what I will say about that fight, too, though, for me, the most telling thing about Tony Ferguson in there is how much he was able to pour it on in rounds four and five. Uh, Because in rounds four and five, to me, were definitely the most obvious for Tony. You know, I, I definitely gave him two, possibly three. And most definitely four and five. He's just able to pour it on against the guy who had done championship rounds before uh, and out cardioed the hell out of him. I just thought he looked fresher than RDA constantly. So that would be the win that finally propels Tony into this lightweight uh, interim title shot. Habib, one week later, would be fighting old pal Michael Johnson, and it's at UFC 205 in Madison Square Garden on the prelims. Now, it's worth noting Habib was absolutely used as a pawn in the UFC and Connor negotiations. He was he signed a contract to fight the champion Eddie Alvarez. That was then pulled, and Connor got the shot. Dana White all but basically said, yep, we messed that one up, and we are sorry. <laughs> um, but Habib got Michael Johnson nonetheless. Habib was tagged in round one, looked a little stunned. It's actually the most stunned we've ever seen him. Uh, a lot of people wanted to jump on it, but Michael Johnson's a good striker, and what ended up happening after that was Habib said, F this, and he put on a ground-and-pound cl- clinic. And it's I, a- I think he went in there trying to show his hands, to be honest with you, um, but you see more of that same stuff that happened we mentioned in the Pat Healy fight where his combinations are all below his shoulders. Like, he's throwing very low punches, and his head stays very high, which when you get strikers like... Michael Johnson and you get strikers like Pat Healy is really dangerous. Uh, now Habib uh, puts on a ground and pound clinic here and it's pretty awesome. He starts talking shit to Dana White between rounds one and two. Um, and Dana White was quoted as saying, I was yelling at him, finish this fight first. Every round he's screaming at me. I get it. Understood. He wants a title shot. I get it. We'll figure it out. Habib is screaming, give me your son. Give me your son <laughs> in, in response to Connor. Um, and actually at one point as he's smashing uh, Michael Johnson in the face, he's saying, I have to fight for a title. He's saying this to Michael Johnson. You know this. I don't want to smash your face. I already beat you. You have to give up. Um, which is just incredible. He ended up getting a very tight Kimura in the third round. Uh, the fight was close to being stopped a number of times just because of the brutal ground and pound. 
And then Habib gave a very memorable interview uh, calling McGregor a chicken in the octagon. And I'll do my awful Russian imitation. Your guy, he talked too much. <laughs> the crazy power of the UFC Piata machine. Uh, beginning year, he cluck like chicken. End of year, he fight for title. Irish, only $5 million. Russia, $150 million. He actually brings up a pretty good point here, Gumby. Obviously, he's referring to the fact that McGregor uh, clucked like a chicken against Nate Diaz in March, i.e. he got choked out. And then here we are, six months later, he's fighting for a title. You look at the hard work that Habib and Tony Ferguson have done in their four years in their career and basically having to beg for a title shot. Uh, he would go on the MMA Hour that next Monday and said it wasn't shit talk. It was truth talk. Um, and he also said this about Michael Johnson. He said, um, I went very slowly uh, with Kimura. I'm very careful because I don't want to break his arm like Nagata Mir. I go very slowly and he taps, which I just thought sounded like something Ivan Drago would say. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think Habib did a good job of capturing the moment. Uh, the UFC uh, put him in the title shot after this fight, the or the interim title shot, and we now have confirmation from Dana White that the winner of this fight for the interim title will face Connor for the real title uh, later on in the year. So before we actually get to the breakdown and the preview of UFC 209, let's just discuss this philosophically for a minute. Why did it take this long for Habib and Tony Ferguson to get their title shot? Well... So I think it has a number of things to do with it. I, I think you touched upon it a couple of times in there that when Tony was being the most hyped was right after the Ultimate Fighter and the loss to Michael Johnson was actually a huge setback. And not only that, not only did he lose, he then had to get a surgery that put him out for a year and a half. And I think you saw that they when he came back, they were like, eh, we're putting you on the Mike Rio. Yeah, on, yeah. On Facebook. And on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, like, so I think that has a lot to do with it. That loss was really big. I also think you touched upon the idea that, like, he didn't, he, he's not a Mike guy. You know what I mean? Like, he's a guy who gets on the mic and says what he thinks, but he doesn't have it, like, planned out. You know, like, he's not got the Elias Theodoru thing going on where he could talk himself into just about any fight. So I think that's it for him. For, for Habib, I think it's almost the reluctancy of the UFC to push a Russian. Right. Um, and, and I don't mean that in being racist or, or being, you know, you know, in any way, shape, or form, but it, it seems like there's so many Russians. Their names are so similar. You know, like, they all have 450 syllables with the exception of Adlan Amagov. You know, like, it, it seems to me like it, it's harder for a, a casual U.S. fan to remember the name Khabib Nurmagomedov. I don't think... I agree with you. I don't think there's any coincidence that with the geopolitical climate right now uh, that Habib is finally getting this title shot as the UFC won, just negotiated a new TV deal in Russia, and two, the current administration... Uh, you know, might have closer ties to Russia than I'm not getting political here, but it's just it's just a fact that, um, you know, Russian relations will be better maybe now than they were, let's say, three years ago. I don't think it's a coincidence that he's finally in the limelight. I mean, the timing was all perfect, obviously, and you can't deny a guy on an eight fight win streak. But again, I think they do have their eyes on 
a Russian card. Yeah, and, I, I think and, they do too. And this is a fighter who has 147,000 Twitter followers, and that is no joke. Yeah. Because the major- the, your average UFC fighter, your average UFC fighter, and I'm not talking Ronda Rousey with you know, 3 million followers and Connor with 2 million Twitter followers, your average UFC fighter probably has about 38. Yeah. And it, it's, it is, he does have a huge pull in Russia, but until they cracked into that market, it doesn't matter to the UFC. Cause that doesn't mean cash. Right. You exactly. know, like, so now that they're cracking into it, 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 it could makes, mean something, so it makes sense for him to be there at this, this point. All right, so we've looked at their careers. Uh, they're two fantastic fighters. It's awesome that they're fighting. It's, I'm so happy one of them is getting a title, because I am, uh, although I have said in the past, I am a bigger fan of Tony Ferguson. I'm a huge fan of both. I'm a, me too. I'm a massive fan of both. I like both. But that all being said, you know what? One of them could lose here, and the way injuries and everything else happens in the UFC, all they have to do, and actually this would be the best chess move from a marketing perspective, Let's say whoever loses gets Nate Diaz this summer and just terrorizes and beats the crap out of Nate Diaz. That's if Nate Diaz would take that. If if Nate Diaz would take it. But that all being said, you use the Nate Diaz who has a big name now from the fights with Connor and XYZ. The other one's going to be a title contender within a year or two. Yeah, you would think so. They're not going to, you know, go into nothingness. So that all being said, let's get to the preview of what you think Gumby Habib Nurmagomedov is the minus 190 favorite. Tony, a slight underdog. Oh, not really slight. It's plus 165 for Tony. That's a pretty significant. Yeah, that's kind of significant. Your thoughts? Uh, I'm going with Tony Ferguson on this. If you couldn't tell by the picks I had already and what I was saying about their fights, I I really do think the hole in Habib's game here is his ability to keep people down. Because you mentioned, you know, that, that he got Abel Trujillo down 21 times. April Trujillo got up 18 times, you know, and and to me, that's pretty significant. You also talked about him getting his head stuck. I'm not saying he's not going to get Tony Ferguson down, but I'm saying he's going to have to deal with submission attempt after submission attempt doing so. And he's going to have to keep him there. And he is much better at keeping him there now than he was during that Chiesa fight or during that uh, trio fight rather. But to me, if he can't keep him down, he's going to have to do that for five rounds. And the difference in the striking is immense to me. You know, I, I mentioned, you know, I think that he gets tagged because he throws his combinations with his hands low. He throws those combinations with his hands low. Ferguson is going to make him pay. Uh, and, and to me, that's why Ferguson is such a live dog here is I think that Habib leaves his head open too often and is going to have trouble keeping him down for five rounds. He's going to have to strike with him. All right, so here's my thing. I kind of hate making uh, predictions because, it, you know, first of all, it almost deters. This is like a cop-out answer. It almost deters from the style battle that we're about to see. We don't really know how the fight will play out. So I hate being like, well, I think blah, blah, blah is going to get a third-round knockout. Yeah, we're all talking about I, I, I won't ever predict yeah, that deep. Yeah, that, that deep or detailed. Like, would anyone have guessed that Connor was going to sleep Jose Aldo in 13 seconds? Would anyone have guessed that Connor? was going to outstrike Eddie Alvarez for two rounds or that uh, (laughs) yeah Connor or that Holly Holm was going to head kick Ronda Rousey no one predicts these things because styles make fights and for all I know someone has a bad bowel movement the day of a fight and we're not getting the performance we expected from them that all being said I think all the points you brought up were in you know right on the money I think 
I worry about Habib in the fourth and fifth round of this fight. We have seen some cardio issues, and then we have seen him, like I said, I didn't bring it up for no reason. He has gotten caught in some shitty guillotines that someone with the best darts in the history of the UFC could turn into something significant. Like this a crazy is, ninja choke or something. This is a crazy grappler. Now, that all being said, Habib is the greatest controller of someone on the ground. I know what you're saying. Yeah, Trujillo got up 18 times. It, he's, but, he's a much different guy than he was against Trujillo. But the punishment Trujillo took over those three rounds, for all we know, if that fight run into the fourth round, Habib was about to choke him out. The point being, if he gets Tony on the ground and just starts ground and pounding him, you know, can you put him away? That's the question. I don't know. But could he outlast him in a decision? Yeah. Could Here's another thing. If Tony does something as we go back, let's bring it all the way full circle, baby. As Brock Lesnar said, he gets into dominant position, gets too fanciful. Sometimes the slick jits shit as a guy who loves jits. Slick jits, too. (laughs) And slick jits, too, does not work in an MMA fight. And if Tony's going to go for something wild against someone who's so good at the arm control and the ground control... I'm just so excited for this fight. It's why we just did an hour and 15 minute preview for it. (laughs) I can't wait to watch it. I could see Tony locking in a submission late in the fight. I could also see Tony sleeping him because you're right. He is a better striker. But when I play this out in my mind, I keep thinking Habib is the greatest controller of humans on the ground and punishing them that we have seen to this date. I'm not alone in thinking that. Robin Black, who's you know regarded as probably the best uh, breaker-downer of UFC fights. I like him a lot, but I, I actually like uh, that Drew... Is it Drew Gooden? Uh, Drew, oh, the... The one who does it with uh, Dan Hardy. Yeah, yeah. It's something Gooden. I think it's Drew Gooden. Drew yeah. Gooden's a basketball player, too. I just wanted to make sure I didn't fuck that up. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, yeah, but the point being, it's an exciting fight. Uh, I think the odds are about right. I would call Tony... I would call him an underdog. I would call him an underdog, but I think Just because he doesn't do so in such a dominant fashion, whereas Habib's wins are dominant. Dominant, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Gumby, we're going to take a pause from UFC 209 right now. We had a chance to catch up with Jeremy Kennedy, who fights at UFC Fight Night 106 in Fortaleza, Brazil next week. Uh, We're excited to play you this interview, and it, of course, is brought to you by the only fight gear made out of hemp. And if you don't know about hemp, you should look it up because it's about a billion times stronger than cotton, super durable, antimicrobial. Head on over to dsgear.com and introduce yourself to Datsusara Hemp Gear. We recommend their fight shorts, but if you're a gi guy or a gi gal, they also make hemp gis. dsgear.com, promo code TOPTURTLE. Datsusara brings you our interview with UFC fighter Jeremy Kennedy. This is Daniel Gumby Vreeland here with my co-host Dave Tremonti, and we are talking with Jeremy Kennedy, who fights Hani Jason at Ultimate Fight Night 106, Fortaleza, Brazil, on March 11th. Uh, Jeremy, last time we talked to you was right before your fight with Alex Ricci. Since then, you've had two straight fights canceled, once with your opponent getting hurt, Josh Emmett, once with you getting hurt before your Mirsad Bektik fight. You know, how are you able to keep up all that positive energy in the gym and keep making gains when, when stuff keeps falling through and, and getting you down like that? Um, you know, it's just, it's my job as part of the game. Like it's, it was happening long before the UFC too, you know? So it's, uh, something that every fighter should be used to, you know, like you don't really know who you're going to fight until you get into that cage. Like you can sign on the down the line, but I was training for Emmett and then, uh, he got injured a week out. So Richie popped right up and you know, that was that the, uh, 
Mursad fight kind of happened all so quickly. It came and, and went so quick because it was a short notice thing anyways. But, uh, yeah, was, I've, I've been training. I train hard year-round, so that's like that's what every UFC fighter should, you know. On a day's notice, you should be able to uh, be in shape, be able to make weight and everything like that. So uh, I'm just glad I finally got another fight booked, you know, in six months or so. So I'm just excited to get in there. It's a good fight for me. I think it's great. I get to, you know, explore somewhere new. So, yeah, I'm excited for it. Yeah, so let, let's talk about exploring somewhere new. You are heading into probably the most hostile territory in all of MMA. Uh, you're fighting oh, yeah. in Brazil against a, a pretty well-liked Brazilian and Hani Jason. Uh, I mean, you've only really ever fought in Canada where you live or Thailand where you were living at the time. Uh, you know, yeah. what is it going to be like going in as the, the enemy and not the fan favorite for, for possibly the first time in your career? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something different new i don't think it's going to be uh too de- detrimental to the fight itself you know like maybe the lead up might be a little different just uh not having family friends and stuff like that you know just me and my coaches but i mean yeah it's it's definitely hostile territory considering i think he's from that even that that area Fort Laza, yeah yeah i think he's from yeah so uh I went from going fighting in my hometown to uh, fighting in somebody else's hometown. But, you know, I'm, I'm due. It's all right. So I'm excited for it. Yeah, uh, and we're excited to see it. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about some other pieces of that fight, too. You know, you're coming back from, from a, a short try into the 155 division. When you fought Ricci, it was at 155. You know, you talked before that fight about how you felt much fresher and you felt like, you know, you weren't mentally drained, you weren't physically drained. You know, you're going back to 145. Is there any worry now that the, the weight cut is, is going to be a little bit harder knowing what it's like, you know, not to have to cut all that weight? Yeah. Um, like, when I was fighting 55, I, I was pretty much walking in on weight, you know. So, um, that, like, at at all, right? But I mean, a little bit of stress isn't isn't too bad, especially when you get the full thirty six hours, pretty much now with their new rules where you early weigh in. Um, I'm not I'm not just worried about it. I've made forty five my whole career, and yeah, now I just do it. I'm gonna feel whatever else feels like. But I was just lucky that last fight, but again, it was a disadvantage I didn't like in the cage. You know, I, I had to fight completely different. I didn't get to show off a lot of my skills. You know, I didn't get to have a fun fight in there. I was just, like, so worried about his, his size and his weight. He was really hard to control. And I didn't want to keep him out, outside because like, he was the bigger guy, you know. So I, I just had to fight a little different, where this time I'm down in my normal weight class. You know, I got a great matchup, and I just I get to actually show what I'm capable of, you know. So it's definitely the better move for me. Absolutely. And, and so let's talk a little bit about getting ready for this fight. So in addition to, you know, dealing with the, the extra weight cut, we also saw that you were training a little out in Manila between the fights with uh, Bibiano Fernandez, who's a, a big uh, star in the 135 division uh, outside of the UFC. You know, how was the trip out there? And, and what do you feel like you picked up in the, the training overseas? Yeah, well, um, Bibi, Bibi lives here, actually, you know, and uh, I trained with him year round. He's uh, like my jiu-jitsu coach, but he had a fight out there, so I went out with him, and I did some training out there, but it was mainly just, just for him. That was his fight. That was his week, but uh, I just went out there to support him and, and corner him, but uh, other than that, yeah, Bibby, Bibby's a perfect style of fight for you know to be training for with how good he is off of his back and his level of jiu-jitsu and everything like that. 
I'm, I'm pretty sure him and Honey are even the same same height. So he's definitely a good body type for me to be, be grappling with and sparring with and stuff like that up to this fight. Now, a, a little off topic from from the UFC and MMA, um, but as a uh, a grappler yourself, uh, what do you think of events like EBI and Submission Underground? I saw you were interacting with some fans on Twitter, uh, you know, potentially retweeting or endorsing the idea of you versus Artem Lobov in Submission Underground. Uh, okay. wh- where does that that beef come from? And, and you know, are, are you a fan of these events and and seeing jujitsu, you know, kind of get more on the map here recently? Yeah, of course, man. I uh, I love those events. You know, the the rules are fun. You know, it's crowd pleasing as well. I, I mean, I, I like the IBJJF stuff. I mean, I, I was competing in jiu-jitsu before MMA, and that's where I started. That's what got me into the sport was you know jiu-jitsu when I was ten, like thirteen years old. So, um, yeah, with the Artem thing, you know, I just I kind of called his name out first. And it was it was nothing you know disrespectful or anything. I just wanted my shot at 45, and I figured you know why not go down there and fight a, a well-known guy, but who I I believe I I'm better than you know I should be in the division over him, right? So, uh, but that didn't happen. He was kind of talking some stuff on Twitter and everything <laughs> like that. So he kind of made a, a little bit of a feud there out of it, and I'm okay with that. You know, I, I'll grapple him, I'll fight him, I'll box him, I'll kickbox him. I'll do. I think I beat him everywhere. So. Somebody posted that we should grapple, and I was like, "Why not? If I can't fight you in the cage, I'll submit you." Yeah, and, and no publicity yeah. is bad publicity there. So, um, let, let's kick let's kick it back to to your fight. One last uh, question about you know getting ready for the Honey Jason fight. You know, he's a seven fight UFC veteran. Has done very well in the division. You know, you're only 24 years old. You only got nine career fights. How do you feel that you make up for the lack of experience in the cage? And and how do you think you're going to square up with him when when you do finally get in there? Um, yeah, I guess I said this is an awesome fight for me. You know, he's, I'm going to his hometown. I'm playing spoiler. You know, I'm playing the heel here. And he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's had, he's had almost as many fights in the UFC as I've had in my career pro anyways. And he's the ultimate fighter winner. So it's like, man, it's, so it's, it's nice to fi- fight a guy where the casual fan even knows him. You know, they, they ask me who I'm fighting and I say, Honey Jason, and they know of him, you know, so that gives me good fire and good, like, I, I want to beat this guy, you know, I want to, I want to replace him in the rankings. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I had nine amateur fights, which were here. They're the only difference in Vancouver was that the time difference, they're three minute rounds compared to five. So, I mean, I mean, I've had, I've had 18 fights and I'm 17 and one overall. I mean, 18 and one overall, ah, sorry. I've had 18 fights and 17 and one overall. And, uh, I consider those experiences, even though, yeah, he's had a lot of high-level competition. That wears on your body, and I've been training with high-level guys forever. I've just haven't been fighting him in the cage. You know, I've been grappling him on the mats and sparring with him every day. So, skill for skill, I'm not. I'm not worried about it. His experience, I'm. I'm not too worried about his. Uh, there's a few things I got to definitely be careful of where he's dangerous, but overall, I believe I'm. I'm better than him everywhere. I mean, even. Even his jiu-jitsu, yes, he's in the gi, he would probably beat me. But, yeah, I would consider myself a black belt in, in MMA grappling with ground and pound and top position and hybrid mixing and wrestling and everything like that. I, I would consider myself on par there. So I'm, I'm not worried about taking him down. People are saying, you know, I feel for the triangles and stuff like that. That's stuff that's drilled. That's, 
that's stuff everyone's got to be worried about. But I'm to think that I'm going to go out there and I I can't take him down is is just it's wrong, you know. But I I believe I can I can outstrike him, you know, because especially body types and and I I watch his his style. He's not too movement, you know, and he's he's a lot shorter than me, but he has good reach. But uh, yeah, I mean I, I've dissected this guy, man. I'm I'm ready to go already, and I still got six weeks. So. Yeah, well, a, a very well said, you know, and uh, I really like the distinction you make there about MMA grappling. Uh, that's something that I don't think gets talked about enough uh, because you could have all the grappling credentials in the world, but when you get in the octagon, it, it's a different type of grappling positionally, you know, exactly. putting strikes into it. So I, I love that you made that distinction. Jeremy, we cannot thank you enough for the time. Jeremy fights Roni Jason at uh, Fight Night 106 in Brazil on March 11th. Thanks so much, Jeremy, and best of luck in the fight. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. All right, Gumby, there you have it. Jeremy Kennedy. You got to love the, uh, the the willingness to go into Brazil against Hani Jason, who Brazilians fucking love, and he, not even phased by the idea uh, and from a young prospect. That's just awesome to see. All right, so we did an hour and 15 minutes on Habib <laughs> versus Tony Ferguson, and yeah. if you weren't inspecting that, I mean, that was a punch in the face, so I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, and- I-, I hope you enjoyed it, too. Uh, it was something we wanted to try that was a, a little bit new, where we kind of gave you guys the history of the rise of those people, um, it, it, which is a, we're not going to do every single time. That it, That is something uh, we're only, just trying out. Only for special fights. So let's go to the rest of UFC 209. We'll do this in lightning-fast fashion. We, of course, talked about the co-main event at length. The main event is for the welterweight title it's the champion uh, tyron woodley uh, defending his title against stephen thompson the last fight ended in uh not controversy i would say a well-deserved draw a well-deserved draw i had it as a draw that woodley won via majority draws or sorry woodley kept his title via majority draw and here we are in the rematch uh, what are your thoughts on this rematch? You know, I, a lot of times with rematches, uh, I just stick with the person who I picked the first time. But if you go back and listen to when I picked uh, on this card the first time, I went with Thompson, but I'm actually going to go with Woodley here. Uh, the reason being is Woodley definitely hit Thompson harder. Uh, and the second reason being his corner. I think he's got a better corner in Dean Thomas. In, uh, and Rufus Sport, right? And uh, Yeah. Oh, also Dude, working Rufus. with Rufus Ford, yeah. but also working with ATT. And, yeah. And, oh, and Mike Brown yeah, and Dean Mike Thomas. Brown and Dean Thomas. So I also want to say that too. That I thought, uh, you know, first of all, I thought Woodley came closer to finishing the fight with that guillotine. Better physicality too and, in the whole thing. And then the ground and pound in, in round one. If Woodley wants to just make this a boring fight, I mean, just take him down, yeah. ground and pound him for five rounds. Absolutely. Uh, he is the plus one thirty dog. However, is the champion Stephen Thompson the minus one fifty favorite? Uh, we go now to the third biggest fight on the card. You have Mark Hunt making his return after losing to PED user Brock Lesnar back at UFC 200. He is a plus 120 dog against Alster Overeem, a minus 140 favorite, also coming off a loss to the champ Stipe Miocic. Who you got in this heavyweight battle? Uh, I think I got Alistar. Just since he got knocked out by Travis Brown, he's just way more technical and more careful uh, and I think doing that, he, he most likely is going to stay away from that big shot from Mark Hunt. But the thing you got to love about two K1 kickboxing, you know, veterans here is, is this is going to get a knockout. You're going to get a sweet knockout um, because you got two 265 pound dudes just slugging it out. 
at middleweight, you have Rashad Evans finally making his middleweight debut after all the pullouts because some undisclosed medical reason. He's going to be fighting Dan Kelly, who is a 12-1 and pro, and he is, believe it or not, kind of snuck up on me, Gumby. 5-1 and in the UFC on a three-fight win streak. Yeah, and you want to know why he snuck up on you is because... He- a, he doesn't look intimidating. He's got the dad bod going on. And B, I'm pretty sure he's like 38 or 39 years old, uh, if I'm not mistaken. He's like pushing 40. Uh, he is, in fact, 39. Yeah, I think Rashad Evans is actually the younger of the two fighters here. Uh, I, I'm probably going to go with Rashad Evans just because he's much quicker. The people Dan Kelly has been knocking out are slower and, and somebody he can land bombs on, which I don't think is Rashad Evans here. At lightweight, we've already spoken about him in the lead up to Habib versus Tony. You have Lando Veneta uh, facing David Timer. Uh, I'm like Lando Veneta. I I think he's probably one of the better prospects in the lightweight division. He's only 24 years old. I mean, he went to war with Tony Ferguson and had his moments. Tamer, though, is a very good opponent. I'm picking Lando, but not by as much as people think. The FS1 prelims, you have a heavyweight offering of Marcin Tybura versus Luis Henrique. I like Tybura just because I like his grappling in addition to his striking, whereas uh, Luis Henrique's is a little bit more one-dimensional. At featherweight, Mirsad Bektik is going to be fighting Darren Elkins. Mirsad Bektik, I have praised as one of the better prospects at, at featherweight for a really long time. So many people have leapfrogged him because he's been injured so much. But if you see the same Mirsad Bektik as from earlier in his career as you do against Elkins, he'll crush Elkins. Uh, going off of, uh, uh, sorry, going to bantamweight, you have Uri Alcantara versus Luke Saunders. I like Luke Saunders out of, uh, MMA lab. I just think he's stronger in Alcantara. I mean, unless he can get you in top game, he's in a really bad place here with Sanders. Another heavyweight offering on the FS1 prelims, Mark Godbeer versus Daniel Spitz. Yeah, I think I like Spitz in this. I have to see a little bit more of him. I did recently watch his fight with Cabbage Korea, which is a hell of a throwback name uh, if you're an old school UFC fan. But he's very light on his feet. His striking is very interesting. He's got like a Thai style, uh, which I think could be tricky for Godbeer. We move to the UFC Fight Pass prelims. You have a light heavyweight fight of Tyson Pedro versus Paul Craig. I actually like Tyson Pedro, despite Paul hey, Craig being a friend of the show. Don't I know, do that. Friend of the show, but, uh, you know, when he fought his last fight, Paul Craig did, uh, against Luis Enrique, it, it seemed like he got a lot of things going. Uh, however, I don't think he'll be able to sub... Tyson Pedro like that, especially not from his back. And Pedro's striking, I think, is actually better than Craig's. A women's strawweight offering, Amanda Cooper versus Cynthia Calvillo. Uh, so Cynthia Calvillo is definitely an interesting prospect. She's only 3-0. and oh. Cooper has definitely got the bigger name experience. Um, and I'm probably going to go with her just because her grappling, top game grappling is good. Um, but it, it should be an interesting fight, despite the fact that neither are big names. Kicking off UFC 209 on fight pass prelims at Bantamweight, Albert Morales versus Andre Sukamanth. <laughs> uh, Ta. Sure. Yeah, Sukum Ta, who's the first Laotian fighter in the history of the UFC. Um, He's fighting from CES MMA. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, He was their uh, champ there uh, at Bantamweight. Uh, I expect him to 
put on an absolute striking clinic because his tie game, really good, really fun to watch in the clinch, uh, even though Morales is a hell of a striker too. So I, I would say top to bottom, just fun style matchups all the way through here. All right, that is UFC 209. We are Top Turtle Podcast. You could catch us on Twitter at Top Turtle MMA or at Gmail, uh, Top Turtle MMA at Gmail. Do me a favor, write us tweet us let us know what you thought of the elongated hardcore history version of habib versus tony ferguson and we'll break it out for another marquee fight down the road that all being said i am david tremonti he is daniel gumby vreeland thanks so much for listening to top turtle episode 60